Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Here in Israel, 2022 started with a bang, literally. Early on Saturday morning, two rockets from Gaza were launched toward Israel and landed in the sea not far from Tel Aviv. Israel later struck back at Hamas targets in Gaza. Are we starting the new year by deteriorating into another round of fighting? Dr. Shira Efron will be our guest later on the show to discuss the situation in Gaza and what can be done to avoid a major escalation. But before that... Our guest today is Chuck Freilich, a former deputy national security advisor of Israel and the author of the forthcoming book, Israel and the Cyber Threat, How the Startup Nation Became a Global Cyberpower. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Amir. Great to have you with us. And the main issue we want to discuss with you today is a fascinating article you published last week on Haaretz with the very captivating headline, This is what would happen if Israel strikes Iran. Uh, an issue that is obviously uh, interesting to many of our listeners. I want to start with a general question. Do you think it's likely, possible, in the realm of uh, realistic expectations that Israel would strike Iran's nuclear sites? Well, the question is when. I don't think we are there yet. And uh, frankly, I very much hope that we don't reach that stage. To my way of thinking, it is a truly last resort option when we've exhausted all other uh, all other options. Mm-hmm. I was uh, actually, I believe, the second former Israeli defense official to come out in favor of the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal, as the best of the bad options. I still believe that that's the case. I hope we can get back to a modified version of the JCPOA because it has to be updated somewhat. But in the final analysis, when push comes to shove, when when we have exhausted all other options, I believe that Israel has no choice whatsoever. And that moment right now you're saying is not currently on the table. What do you think would be the breaking point from the Israeli point of view? A failure of the negotiations, an Iranian break to the bomb? What are we looking at as the sign that could say this is coming? Well, just a failure of the negotiations, I don't think would do it. I think we would need clearer intelligence that they are breaking out to the bomb. Mm-hmm. What that means at this point isn't uh, so much Iran, uh, uh, uranium, I was about to say Iranian, but uranium enrichment. Uh, Iranian uranium actually, enrichment. <laughs> you're right. They're actually just weeks away from having enough fissile material, in other words, enough highly enriched uranium for a first bomb. And in a couple of months, it'll be two bombs. And within a half a year, they can have a small arsenal of a few bombs. But that's just the uranium uh, component, a critical one, but just one of the two. The other is weaponization, the ability to take a warhead and miniaturize it, put it on a uh, missile and to make a warhead that can withstand the heat and stresses of reentry into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. They're not there yet. The various estimates range from a year to two years to do that. But the truth is that those estimates have been there for at least the last 15 years, maybe even more. So the Iranians have clearly not made the decision, knowingly not made the decision 
to cross that critical threshold. I think because they realized that that would be a bridge too far that might invite uh, Israeli or American military action. Uh, that would be the critical breakout point from my point of view. What do the Iranians fear more in your view, an Israeli strike or an American strike, or is it the same from their point of view? No, I think there's a huge difference. Everyone knows, uh, I mean, Israel, with, with all due respect to our own considerable capabilities, in the end, we're a small regional power. The United States is a global superpower with capabilities that are infinitely greater than Israel's. Not only can the U.S. conduct a far more effective attack against the nuclear sites themselves, but the Iranians fear that the U.S. is actually the only actor in the world that could even topple the Islamic Republic. And as in all countries, maintaining their regime is their number one priority, particularly in the case of Iran, where the Islamic Republic is considered the embodiment of the divine word on earth. So the threat to their regime is something that they take very, very seriously. That's only from the U.S. Uh, yes, they're also concerned about the potential for an Israeli strike, which would surely be uh, far more limited. In your article, one interesting observation you made is that over the decades, one after the other Israeli prime ministers were dreaming of an American attack on Iran, basically hoping that America would solve this problem for us. And one after the other American presidents, Republican and Democratic, including the last president, Donald Trump, didn't go with that idea, even if they had the tough sanctions on Iran or carried out military attacks against Iran, they never went that distance. And so right now, from the Israeli point of view, looking at the Biden administration and the negotiations, Israel has to prepare its own option. Yes. Look, in the final analysis, we are responsible for our own defense. For better and for worse, that is part of national sovereignty, of our renewed national sovereignty after 2,000 years. We have a truly remarkable relationship with the United States. Uh, known as a special relationship, and it really is special. But we're responsible for our own defense. And on numerous critical occasions in the past, the United States did not step up to the plate from Israel's point of view. If we're talking on the nuclear level, of course, it's 1981, the Iraqi reactor, and 2007, the Syrian reactor, where in both cases, Israel was forced to act because it felt that the U.S. was not handling the issue. In the case of uh, the Syrian reactor in 2007, there was even an open conversation between Prime Minister Olmert and then President Bush, in which Bush said, look, uh, without some overwhelming proof, without absolute smoking gun, I can't do this after Iraq. And Olmert is reported to have said to him, well, Mr. President, something like, Mr. President, uh, you know, if that's the case, then the state of Israel will have to do what it has to do. And Bush basically said, okay, go and do it. Now, I don't think it's going to be quite so simple if and when Israel is forced to act. And again, let me say that this is, for me, a last resort option only. There will be severe ramifications for this attack, both militarily in terms of the Iranian and Hezbollah response, in terms of the international response and the American one. So let's play out the scenario a bit then. First okay. of all, in the article, you describe a bit what would be the objective of such an attack. And you're saying basically Israel at this point in time, if it will choose to strike, 
is not looking to completely annihilate, destroy the Iranian program because you cannot do that anymore. We're basically looking, if we do it, to buy time. Correct. And the truth is, I don't even think we can gain a lengthy period of time. An optimistic outcome would be two to three years. And as I said, that's optimistic. Why do you think we can only buy time in a limited amount of it? Well, I think both we and the United States missed the opportunity to destroy the program a good decade ago, maybe more, because Iran crossed the technological uh, threshold, at which point it knows how to build the capabilities. So even if you destroy them uh, down to ashes, they know how to rebuild it. Now, how long would that take? I don't know exactly. Nobody else knows exactly. We're talking a major infrastructure project. Uh, these things take time. Some people say, well, Israel won't gain more than a year. That seems to me to be a gross understatement because they're assuming something like Iran starts working the second the attack is over mm-hmm. and they don't run into any difficulties in the course of the construction. And of course, there will be people who will try to cause them some difficulties and they work around the clock 24-7. Well, I don't think it's going to work uh, that well. And there are other people who dream of five years, and that sounds to me very, very uh, overly optimistic. And so I'm going with some sort of uh, middle assessment. And as I said, even that may be a bit optimistic. Even the U.S. can't achieve more than that uh, with one attack. Now, of course, uh, whoever does it, if, if you do it once, you would have to be willing to go in a, a second time if necessary Well, for Israel, all of this is the absolute outer limits of our capabilities. For the United States, it isn't. Mm-hmm. The U.S., as I said, is a global superpower. It can put planes uh, anywhere uh, on Earth, uh, attack targets anywhere on Earth. It can do it repeatedly. The type of operation we're talking about in Iran isn't even that big an operation for the United States. It's not small, but it's not that big either. But even they can't destroy the program completely unless they keep hitting it time and again, because Iran knows how to reconstitute. Mm-hmm. So if Israel were to carry forward a strike, what we're talking about again here is buying time, causing severe damage to the program, but not completely destroying it. And then what happens? What is the Iranian response that we can anticipate? Well, I think we can anticipate a strong Iranian response against Israel. Uh, first and foremost, by means of Hezbollah, they built up Hezbollah, the mammoth arsenal that they have, uh, maybe up to something like 150,000 rockets. It is simply, uh, it is a mammoth and truly frightening arsenal built for the potential scenario of, of either Israel or the U.S. It, attacking their nuclear it, it, program. It's there for a reason, all those missiles... They're not just standing there to bask in the sun. Correct. It's not just uh, for a reason, precisely for this, for this reason. And they can hit us, hit us massively uh, from Lebanon via Hezbollah. They've begun building up their own presence in Syria and a Hezbollah presence in Syria. They've begun dispersing ballistic missiles in Iraq, Yemen, maybe elsewhere. And they now have their own uh, ballistic missile, cruise missile and drone arsenal. Uh, to hit us with. So I think Iran will respond against Israel very, very severely. It's a price which I think, unfortunately, we have no choice but to pay. Some people, especially if you read the American press, uh, people speculate that 
Iran would uh, respond against the United States. Now, I have to say to my way of thinking, that is truly alarmist thinking. This connects to what we spoke about earlier, the question of what frightens the Iranians more. And you said, obviously, an American strike or a confrontation with America is much more disturbing and dangerous from the Iranian point of view. And so you think in the response, they would try to hit hard at Israel, but without drawing America militarily into the situation, correct? Right. You know, I think they may do something against the U.S. They'll probably even have to just to make it look good for their domestic public opinion. So maybe, maybe they will hit some American uh, forces in the region. They may strike out at other American allies in the region, the, the Saudis, uh, the UAE. I don't think they want to get into a major military confrontation with the U.S. They know that's a losing prospect for them. It's a very losing prospect for them. And despite what people think, the Iranians may be extremists, but they are also very sophisticated. They're very carefully calculating actors. And I don't see why they would have any interest in doing that. Just the opposite, their interest would be to focus the response to Israel. They're better prepared for that. That's what they've built their capabilities for. And many people in the Muslim world and in the international community will even stand up and applaud them for responding to so-called Israeli aggression. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the regional situation, and because of how well spread, as you described, the Iranian militias are, Israel might find itself fighting on several fronts in this kind of scenario? It's a definite possibility. I mean, first of all, it's Hezbollah. And then I think there's a good likelihood that we'll see Hezbollah in Syria and Iran in Syria fighting. Uh, Hamas may decide to join the fray, and Iran itself may decide to get involved directly. In, in other words, the ballistic and cruise missile and drone arsenal that they've built of their own, that would be an escalation from their point of view. It would invite a greater Israeli response directly against other Iranian targets. But once this thing gets going, uh, Israel may feel compelled to take the battle to Iran in any event. In other words, the next major round with Hezbollah, whether it's because of an attack on the nuclear program or whether it starts for totally uh, unrelated reasons, uh, as it is, there's a good chance that this uh, will escalate to a direct conflict between Israel and Iran. I think that's certainly a good likelihood in, in the kind of scenario that we're talking about of an attack on the nuclear program. What does that look like in Tel Aviv and what does it look like in Tehran? Well, it looks pretty bad in both places. Iran will be hit uh, hard. It's far away from us. Remember, anything we're doing in Iran is at the outer limits of IDF capabilities. But we will hit them hard. I would imagine that we will hit targets affiliated with the regime. And if things really get bad, maybe infrastructure targets. Israel is going to be hit massively in a way that we have never been hit in our history. We have to be prepared for that. And I don't think the Israeli public fully understands what a conflict with Hezbollah is going to look like, whether, again, whether it's related to the nuclear program or not. Now, for people who want to know what it looks like, I always say, well, think there was a case a few years ago, some of the listeners may be familiar with this, a brand new multi-story parking garage was literally days from opening in Ramat HaChayal, the neighborhood of Tel Aviv. And due to some engineering major error, 
the whole thing collapsed like a pancake literally the week before it was supposed I, to be I, I remember that it was uh, shocking it was shocking but think of what happened then the traffic snarl started in Ramatachaya spread to Tel Aviv spread to the entire center of, of Israel and then radiated out further uh, into more outlying areas because everything got backed up so there was, the, was there was course, direct impact and then waves and ripples of what it caused yeah Exactly. And that was one scene of um, damage. In peacetime, we're fully in control of the situation. The security forces, the, the rescue forces who came to help, uh, half of them couldn't get there for a while due to traffic. And the whole country was tied up for, for a day because of that. That was one place. Well, we're talking many, many, many targets just in Tel Aviv that will be hit on Each day and many more around the country and then of course there's the danger that they will be able to hit civil infrastructure if they can reduce uh, electricity production no water communications nodes they can shut down important parts of the Israeli economy both through kinetic attacks regular attacks and cyber attacks it's going to be ugly the only thing that's worse than this is to allow Iran to go nuclear and Yeah, that's a, that's a very optimistic way to describe the options on the table here. What would it take for the Americans to get involved? Well, I don't think the U.S. wants to get involved militarily and will do its best not to do so. Uh, as you were saying before, I wrote in the article that uh, many American presidents already since Clinton have, I believe it was five presidents, have refrained from military action. And I think it's pretty clear that Mr. Biden doesn't want to go that route either. The Americans fear that they will be drawn into the fray militarily, even if it's an Israeli attack. I don't think that that is our objective. Our objective is to tr- create a situation, acting militarily for diplomatic purposes, to create a situation in which the international community under American leadership does finally have to take decisive action to put an end or at least a long-term suspension of the Iranian nuclear program. Partly it will be under the threat of repeated Israeli strikes. Not that we can do so many, but if we did it once, we could do another. And I hope that will provide the incentive for the international community to finally act decisively. Mm-hmm. But we also have to take into account that there will be a price to To be paid afterwards not just the military response that I was talking about a minute ago the US will want uh, some sort of compensation for this whole thing it might be by the way in Palestinian currency mm-hmm. okay we finally helped you put an end to the Iranian threat well time for payback the old uh, it's hard the name of an Israeli settlement in, deep in the West Bank uh, in in exchange for Bush her the the Iranian uh, <laughs> in, uh, nuclear site this yeah. is uh, one one idea that was discussed in the Israeli media about a decade ago then and we haven't heard about it ever since but you're saying maybe under this extreme scenario it could come back mm-hmm. interesting there, there, there's a price to be paid again whether it's in Palestinian currency it's in some other currency mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt that there will be people in the world uh, who say, well, if Iran no longer has a nuclear capability and it's been postponed or prevented for the long term, well, maybe no one in the region should have a nuclear capability. And we all know who they would be referring to. Now, going back a bit to our current day reality, after all these uh, frightening potential future scenarios, 
What do you think Israel should be asking these days from the Biden administration as these talks in Vienna are ongoing, the nuclear talks with Iran? What should be the objectives that our government should uh, hope or lobby the American side for? Well, first of all, I think that we always have to try and coordinate positions with the U.S. to the extent possible. And sometimes even when it's painful, because the U.S. is Israel's by far number one overarching strategic ally. And part of the way that we pay the U.S. back for its incredible support for Israel is by being supportive of its efforts. I also think it's in our interest for us to get back to a deal or something like the, the, the so-called old nuclear deal, the JCPOA, because it's the best of the bad options. Now, specifically, there are a variety of things that we need. Uh, the details have to be worked out by the negotiators, but it's trying to roll back the series of violations of the agreement that Iran has conducted. So it's reducing the level of enrichment down to acceptable levels. The JCPOA said less than 4%. It means reducing the quantity of highly enriched uranium. It means um, replacing the advanced centrifuges that Iran has installed in place of the old, uh, less efficient ones. So there are a variety of technical measures that have to be done. It would be nice if we could get improvements in the agreement. Like what? Well, our basic objective, and the U.S. shared this objective, I just don't think it's realistic, is we'd like to put an end to the so-called sunset clauses. In other words, that the agreement doesn't expire, preferably ever, or at least for many more years. We would like to expand the agreement to Iran's missile capabilities. We'd like the agreement to address the issue of Iranian regional expansionism. But I think the harsh reality is that that's not going to happen. And going for the perfect is going to be the enemy here of the good, or even the acceptable. I think we're going to have to back off those demands. I think it's going to be very hard to get back to any agreement. And when you look at the Biden administration's negotiating strategy so far, what's your opinion about how they've been handling this? Do you think the Iranians take seriously their threats of other options in case the negotiations fail? Well, let me start off by the quick answer. No, I don't think the U.S. has a credible military option today. And it will take some time to for, restore for, for, the credibility. For, for, for lack of ability or for lack of public will and support and the uh, and, and political ability to carry it forward? For reasons of uh, will and political feasibility. I mean, because the, the milita- of- militarily, the option is, like you said earlier, exists, you know, all the time. But the, the Iranians calculate, and maybe correctly, that the American public is just not there. Exactly. Uh, there's no problem with military capability. If the U.S. needs a little bit of time to gear up, to prepare the forces, of course, uh, that's fine. There's no doubt that the U.S. can do it in relatively short order. The issue is a political one. Is the will there? Uh, will the president have support of Congress, of his own party for this? That's uh, much more questionable. I tend to think the answer is no. And in light of that political reality, how do you view their negotiating tactic so far? Well, I believe that... The administration, it may have made some small errors in terms of its estimate of where the Iranians were going. For example, they were hopeful that after the elections, after maybe a brief pause, the new Raisi government would basically go ahead from where negotiations had left off with their predecessors. 
that was overly optimistic. That didn't happen. Some people criticized the administration for taking a couple of months at the very beginning to assess the situation, to develop its policy, and to uh, restart the negotiation with the Iranians. They should have done it immediately. I think that's uh, hindsight. That's uh, backbench quarterbacking. For the most part, I think they've handled it well in recent months. The original policy uh, that the president even announced uh, during the campaign was to go back to the old deal as a basis for trying to negotiate the new and better one. I think that was also overly optimistic. You have to take into account that any deal that the U.S. and or Israel consider to be a better one, the Iranians by definition consider to be a worse one. And why would they possibly want to agree to a worse deal when they were observing the old one? It was the U.S. that pulled out without any substantive justification. Uh, you can say that it was a bad deal that never should have been signed. But the fact is that it was and the Iranians were observing it. So the U.S. had no legitimate pretext for withdrawing. The American withdrawals strengthened the hands of the hardliners in Iran, so to speak, proved them correct. Uh, the U.S. is not a reliable partner. We, the Iranians, can't trust the United States. Well, these people are now in power, and they are very suspicious of the U.S., even more than their predecessors. They also believe that they have found a way to withstand uh, American and Western sanctions, partly because Iran built uh, the so-called resistance economy, basically a semi-autarkic economy, partly because China has become their alternative to ties with the West. A huge deal was signed with China just uh, some months ago, partly because uh, oil prices are increasing. So they think that they can withstand the sanctions. And the U.S. doesn't really have the leverage now to force them into a so-called better deal, certainly less leverage than it had in the past. So I'm not sure how this is going to end. I think the smart money would still say that both the Iranians and the U.S. have a very strong interest in getting back to a deal. And so we'll reach the turning point soon. Of course, both sides are trying to get the best deal they can, and the Iranians are playing tough, but they'll cut a deal. Mm -hmm. That is one option. It's maybe even the somewhat more likely one. But the other option is that the new Iranian government really means it. They are a more hardline hawkish government, and they do not intend to make the necessary concessions. And that could perhaps pave the way to the more alarming scenarios we discussed today. Chuck Freilich, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. And we encourage the listeners to find uh, Chuck's article on Haaretz.com if you want to read more about this subject. Uh, Chuck, thank you for joining us. Thank you. After the break, conversation on the recent events between Israel and Gaza and what can be done to avoid another war between Israel and Hamas. Over the weekend, two rockets from Gaza were launched toward Israel and landed in the sea close to Tel Aviv. Israel immediately blamed Hamas and said that the organization is trying to test the boundaries of the ceasefire that's been in place for the last few months between Israel and Gaza, while Hamas claimed that it was not an intentional launch, but rather an accident caused by the stormy weather that came with the new year. To discuss this weird event and the implications it may have, we are joined by Dr. Shira Efron, a special advisor on Israel with RAND and a policy fellow at the Israel Policy Forum. Hello, Shira. 
Hi, Emil. Great to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So what do you think about this event that happened uh, basically on the, the night between Friday and Saturday as we welcomed the new year? Are we about to start it with another escalation between Israel and Hamas? Maybe it's worth mentioning that before this event, also on Wednesday last week, there was another incident. A Palestinian sniper from Gaza uh, shot at Israelis working on uh, uh, close to the fence with Gaza. Uh, in the northern part of the strip. And one worker was so injured. It was light injury, but it was also another alar- alarming development on a border that's been relatively quiet for a long time. Yeah, for seven months, since May, since Guardian of the Walls. And in that incident also, Hamas uh, rushed to um, send messages through Egypt saying this was a mistake. This is just a rogue uh, operating independently and there's no intention. But I think those two incidents combined, they should be viewed as a warning sign that this ceasefire that we've seen since Guardian of the Walls in May is very, very fragile. So in that regard, you know, we're so used to hearing, right? Neither side has incentive for escalation. We've heard this also on the night that the Guardian of the Walls broke. So I think this is still true. I don't think anyone in Hamas leadership now wants another war. Israel is definitely not thinking about it at the moment. Um, however, clearly, the stability, the quiet that we've seen on the border with Gaza, and you know, you live there, Amir, is under risk. It's always a fragile reality. And it seems to me like in the Israeli public discourse, Gaza, except for days like these when there is some rocket launched or some uh, a, a sniper shooting from across the border, doesn't really exist in the public conversation. We, we just forget that it's out there. But it's out there. It's out there and it's not going anywhere. Maybe it's worth mentioning that there are 2.2 million people living in Gaza at the moment. The population there grows at 3% uh, annual rate. It's number 13 in the world. So projections are that there are going to be approximately 3 million people in Gaza by 2030, 4.7 million people by 2030. Two-thirds of the population already is on food assistance. 400,000 students need humanitarian assistance. Over 97% of the, of the aquifer is unusable. And we're talking about the, the estimates are that 96% of the water in Gaza do not comply with the WHO World Health Organization standards. Um, 26% of, I think it's, a, it's about a quarter of uh, kids' uh, 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 diseases in Gaza are related to, to water pollution. So there's this time bomb there and there's, there's you know, Hamas, a terrorist organization, And I think we can talk about the paradigm that has failed uh, repeatedly. And there's also the fact that there's, there are people and they're not going anywhere. And uh, I'll repeat it again. They're your neighbors. You live right next to them. Yeah, it's true. Um, From my home in uh, Kibbutz Nachalos in southern Israel, you hear and uh, see Gaza every day. And, you know, everything you're saying about the humanitarian situation reminds me of a conversation I had a few years ago with uh, one senior Israeli military commander in the area. I asked him, what's your biggest concern these days? What keeps you up at night? And I thought he would say something about, you know, new rockets or drones or tunnels. He said, my biggest fear is that they would run out of water and start walking toward the fence on our side because there would be no more drinking water in there. And, and you know, the fact, though, there's no more water in Gaza. There's just no more water in Gaza because if 96% of the water in Gaza is really not eligible for human consumption... 
And the water price is also unbelievably expensive. We're talking about 30 shekels if you buy it from private vendors or a cubic meter, unlike two shekels that you and I pay in Israel. This means that the fact that there's no water in Gaza. So we're already there. And the international community is trying to act. And you have some projects in Gaza now. But, but the timelines are just not aligned with reality. If we're talking about electricity in Gaza, if everything is going to go forward and the, this mega project, the gas for Gaza, is going to be implemented, that means that you can have electricity in Gaza the soonest, the end of 2024. And this is the unrealistic scenario. Talking about water, this central desalination plant in Gaza will work maybe, maybe, maybe by the end of 2026. And this is really, I mean, an optimistic and unrealistic scenario. So what are we doing until then? Yeah, that's a tough question. And when you look at the months that have passed since the last war, what we called here Operation Guardian of the Walls, has anything been done either from the Israeli side Egypt, the Palestinian Authority, the international community, Hamas, which controls Gaza, to try and improve this reality, to try and take steps that could perhaps push farther away the next explosion? So there is a very uh, project-oriented approach of the international community. And if you look at the data of what comes into Gaza, in terms of materials and goods, uh, you have, uh, we're back at pre-Guardian of the Walls uh, levels and even more so. Uh, you also have 10,000 Gazans coming out of Gaza to work in Israel, something we haven't seen in years. Yeah, that, that was a new uh, development so it, that came with the new government in Israel. Right. So in a sense, we're looking at the previous policies, basically trying to, okay, let's try to stabilize the situation try to have a ceasefire that's also joined by measures that will stabilize maybe the economy, find very creative ways, I must admit, very creative ways of making sure that Hamas pays salaries to its employees so they're all happy. And in a sense, there's not really a change. It's the same paradigm that the previous government started. And this government, even though it said what what there was would not be again, in Hebrew, it's Mashayalo Mashiyah, we're saying practically the same thing. Uh, they're doing other things on the West Bank side, which which you can talk about the Palestinian Authority. But in terms of what is framed here as benefits for Gaza, we're seeing the same paradigm. And this paradigm, thinking that with economic measures, you can satisfy Hamas, has clearly failed. On the other hand, the other paradigm that you choke Gaza, that you put uh, a closure on Gaza, that you heavily restrict what goes in and out of Gaza and who, and I'm understating, right, heavily restricts, uh, that that would undermine Hamas and that would make the people of Gaza see the light and understand that the PA is better and topple Hamas. That hasn't worked either. Look where we are. Uh, Popularity, it's military uh, clout, it's power, it's precision. You know, we all were here in our safe rooms uh, this past spring. So we, we were impressed with Hamas capabilities. I think everyone was. And in terms of recognitions, right, Israel doesn't recognize Hamas. Maybe other countries don't. But de facto, everyone found a way to work with Hamas. They have a border crossing with Egypt, which they officially operate now. Now even Rafa, there's the one next to it, Salah Hadim. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my mind, I just, so this paradigm failed also, right? You can't think that with choking Gaza economically, 
uh, this is going to lead to the downfall of Hamas. And you can think that with what you would call short-term feeding the monster, you would make Hamas happy. So I think we all have to revise what you expect Hamas can be, what the international community hopes to achieve, and then thinking what levers you work with. And I, I'm not seeing this conversation happening because clearly Gaza is not going anywhere, but Hamas is not going anywhere. Yes, that's, uh, that's the reality we've all been uh, forced to live with for so many years, and yet it doesn't seem like there is a proposal for a, a solution or a way to improve it. Do you see any role for the United States, the Biden administration, in maybe pushing a different policy, a different direction, trying something new and different? Definitely. I think in absence of the U.S., Egypt now has a very strong role. But I think that if Israel, the regional countries, and the U.S., which we, we must say has been absent from this discussion now, go back together and you know reassess the quartet conditions, because I don't even hear anyone citing those conditions anymore. The idea was, right, that Hamas needs to uh, abide by uh, recognizing Israel, uh, abiding by agreements, and um, uh, renouncing violence. No one is using these conditions anymore. Do we want Hamas to abide by these conditions? Yeah, there's not even a conversation about it. There's not even a conversation. It, it, what about the um, idea that, that in the past was discussed, and, and at some point, a bit bizarrely, even adopted by the Trump administration right before they went into a complete disconnect from the Palestinian Authority, that the PA needs to get back to controlling Gaza? So I think this is the fantasy, right? We all want the PA to go back to controlling Gaza. We all want the PA, and according to you know the Oslo paradigm, right, the jour, the PA still controls Gaza. So, for instance, when you have the UN has mm-hmm. a project, they negotiated with the PA, then actually on the ground, you have uh, implementers that are not necessarily PA, but, you know, you have, has, everything has to be agreed by Hamas. But, you know, the international community, it's, it's interesting. They don't call Hamas Hamas. They call it de facto because de facto who controls Gaza, it's, it's Hamas. Mm-hmm. Now, There could be ways maybe to entice the PA to go back to Gaza, but so far they see it as a zero-sum game. And as long as Hamas is there and as long as Hamas has its arms, they just don't want to go back. And that goes back, I guess, to your previous question, why, why you would need the U.S., because in terms of the levers that you have influencing the PA to go back to Gaza, I think it can only come from the U.S. This is not something that the PA would volunteer to do. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't blame them. But if the PA wants things, wants to continue to, at this point, talk about strengthening the PA, continuing the support, uh, wanting international legitimacy, they should be a government that is accountable and provides services to its people. And its people are also the two million people in Gaza. That's a great point. Shira, if, if I had to ask you as a last question, apart from the great long-term ideas that we discussed here and the paradigm change that you are offering, If there is one step that you think Israel or the international community can take immediately to dissolve some of these tensions and, and maybe create better conditions on the ground, what would it be? Well, I guess one of the problems with the, those long-term projects is the timeline. So I think we need to start thinking about um, immediate term and medium-term solutions. So when we talk about desalination plants, maybe you don't need the master... You know, $700 million uh, desal plan that takes to build in Israel seven years, so in Gaza it will take 15 years to finish, right? There's mm-hmm. the other ones, uh, smaller ones that you can deploy. There's also 
in Gaza still it's a 2G internet. Yes. And there's a talk now about maybe approving it to go to 4G. I would do this right away because if you want to have some sort of recovery, economic development, you need internet. There are some other ideas, but I guess the main thing would be starting a conversation also with your partner, with Egypt, with the United States. The questions would be, can you and is it possible to return the Palestinian Authority to Gaza? Thinking about sequencing, I also think that you need to think about in terms of what goes in and out of Gaza. Israel keeps it a list of materials that can be used both for civilian and military purposes. And on this list, there are hundreds of items. So a lot of the items that you need for the infrastructure projects, for the water projects, uh, maybe it's time to relax the list and think about what Israel's interest is. And if Israel's interest is not to have uh, people starving and people on the verge of a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, you know, you, you, you do a balance, right? A risk assessment. I'll give you an example. There are a lot of political achievements. Every time we hear, oh, Israel is extending the fishing zone. So Gaza fishermen can, can, can fish to 15 nautical miles. But there are no boats in Gaza that can sail this distance because the materials that you need to repair the boats are on the list. Hmm. So in a sense, I think starting matching between the current needs of Gaza to the policies, which, which we haven't seen yet, and I hope they will. And I think bringing you know, the international community a little bit better into this discussion, that, that would be helpful too. Important words and a lot to think about. Thank you very much, Shira Efron, for joining us for this discussion today. Thank you, Amir. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. We'll be back soon. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.